If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2, or maybe you uh, have advice. Now, um, when couples are newly in love, it's always interesting to hear the things they say. I've heard some couples say, like, we never argue. We, get a, we agree on everything. Um, we, we never fight. We're, we're complete harmony. And, and you hear that. If you've been in a relationship for a while, you go, like, that's cute. That's cute. But he's like, that's not going to last because just give it a little while. You get to know one another and you're going to find some differences. And those differences can turn into arguments. Like it could be something is like this is like, why do you load the dishwasher that you that way? Like, what's wrong with you? I discovered once I got married that I'd been folding towels wrong my entire life. Um, But then those arguments, they can be over over more serious things. It can be like, how are we going to parent our children? What role is faith going to play in the family? Now, as Christians, we're, we're not immune to this. Like, it's not just within romantic relationships, but relationships within the church that we can find things to disagree on. And when Christians spend enough time together, they will find some things to disagree on. And I, I've been a part of churches my entire life, and so I've seen arguments in churches. I've seen factions in churches. I've seen churches um, divide and split and people leave. Now, this is kind of one of the reasons the Apostle Paul writes um, the book of Philippians. It, it seems that there's, there's some problems maybe going on in this church. Now, the Apostle Paul, he plants the church in Philippi around 49 AD, and between 60 and 62 AD, Paul has to write this letter, which is the letter that we're, we're reading from today. And so, you kind of get this idea that the Philippian church is not a totally unified church. And so we're going to jump in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, Paul says that that, that you're to have the same mind. And he's not saying, okay, intellectual uniformity. He's not saying you have to agree as a Christian on every little thing. He's not saying there's no room for opinions and differences of opinion. But what he's trying to do is like, go, guys, remember who you are. You are Jesus's disciples. And he's going, because of who you are, remember your purpose. Your purpose is to to make much of Jesus, to bring glory to God, to tell others about him, to make more disciples. Now, we're going, okay, what's causing the division? What's causing the disunity in the Philippian church? And so uh, in verses three and four, you kind of get some hints about some of the things that are taking place. And so the first one is selfish ambition. Um, division is created when people work to advance themselves and not the mission of the church. So we, we could say it this way. There's going to be disunity in a church when it becomes about us and our kingdoms and us building our individual kingdoms and not building the kingdom of God. Because if it's like, okay, I'm working to advance the kingdom of James and, and you're working to uh, advance your kingdom, of course we're going to butt heads. And like, where's the kingdom of God in all of this? Another, another cause of disunity that we see in verse 3 is pride. And pride can be a pretty big temptation. 
an even bigger temptation than, than wealth. Like we, we want to be admired. We want to be respected. We want to maybe have a platform, have our opinion be requested. We want to be known by name and appearance, maybe be complimented. Like I'll, this can be tempting for, for any of us. And like I'll say, like, man, I can be guilty of that. Um, a, f- a few months ago, myself, Carlos Medrano, and BJ Noyan, we went uh, out for, uh, to a restaurant. We were just having a meal, talking about some different things for the ministry. And towards the end of the meal, our waitress comes up to me and she, she asks, are you a pastor? And I was like, well, yeah. But I was like, how? I, I prayed for the meal. Um, is that why? Do I dress in an overly pastoral way? It's not like I'm wearing a collar out to restaurants or anything. And so I was kind of going like, why? And, and, and I'll, I'll admit, Here's confession time. For, for, for a minute, pride crept in. It's like, maybe she's seen me online. Maybe I'm becoming known. And it's like, no, I got to put that thought out of my head. And all it was was that one of the other waitresses was like, I recognize that guy from somewhere. And she had actually been here at one of our services. Now, we have to constantly remind ourselves as Christians that the aim of the Christian life is not self-promotion, but it's actually dying to self. We do good deeds, not so that people are going to be like singing our praises and bringing glory to you, but so that they would actually sing God's praises and bring glory to him. And so the, the aim of the Christian life is not to focus eyes on ourselves, but actually to focus people's eyes on God and what he's done. Now, the third reason or or cause of of disunity can can be concentration on self. Like when we're uh, concerned first and foremost with our own interests, we are bound to bump heads with other people. So so for the parents in the room, or maybe you grew up with with siblings, like you know the house is calm and it's peaceful and it's quiet when the kids are getting along and they're taking turns and they're sharing. It's beautiful. But as soon as you hear this, that's not fair. It's my turn. What about me? You know the peace is over. Like there's about to be a battle taking place. And so if all of life is this competition where we must win, where, 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 where it's like we got to come out ahead, we're going to look at people as opponents to be defeated. Or we might look at them as, as enemies that we must get rid of. And if it's all about our own interests, the objective of our life is not about serving others and meeting their needs, but it's like, okay, I got to push them down, push them out of the way so that I come out first, that I come out on top ahead of everybody else. And so Paul's going, he, he knows this. For every person, there's this temptation to look out for our own ambitions, to try to advance our own agenda. And, and there's a sense in which disunity and and possible division is the danger of every church, even a healthy church. Like HCC, we're we're not immune to that, to division, to disunity. Um, Like one of our favorite things about HCC is we have about 30 different nationalities or cultures represented here, which is awesome. Like I think it's a snapshot of what heaven's going to be like. But at the same time, we bring in different cultures, different practices. We bring in also different theological backgrounds or church traditions. And so you take all of that, mix it together. And there's a great potential for some disagreements. We go, why do you do things that way? Why do you believe that? And so as Christians, and I'm talking to every person who calls HCC home here, 
It is your job. It is my job to protect the unity of the church. And so we must look at things and go, okay, what's essential? Let's agree on that. What's a matter of opinion? Okay, let's show some, some charity, some liberty here. And in all things, in all things, we must practice love. Now, throughout the years, I mean, we, we've seen when things have been good, Satan likes to kind of get in there and sow some seeds of disunity, put a foot in the door, and he can do it to any one of us. Like, I'll admit there's been times where he's kind of been like poking at me and going, that should bother you. And he's been like, you should get upset about that. And it is, I've been in some dangerous spots and I've, I've had to have people come and like call me out on that. And so this can be a threat to all of us. And we've, we've had some painful times. We've gone through some difficult times because of disunity and division. But we can also testify to this, that God is a God who is able to reconcile relationships. That God is faithful to his church. Now, Paul knows that every person naturally looks to their own interests. And in verses three and four, Paul's point is like, take that level of concern that you have for yourself and apply it to the needs of others. And when people are willing to be leased, when people look out for the interests of others, it can put an end to contentious cliques, to division and disunity. And so in order to create this kind of unity, this attitude in the church, Paul's going, okay, let's look to the example that every Christian is to follow. And so we're going to keep going in verses 5 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Now, these are some of the most famous verses that the Apostle Paul ever put into his letters. And, and Christians are going, did he write them? Did he borrow a hymn and put them in? Um, and the, the kind of sad ironic thing is Paul puts these verses in here to try and create unity and peace and harmony within the church. And Christians are like, let's argue about these verses. Let's get into a fight about them. It was like, what, what does Paul mean? Now, there are some things that, that we got to keep in mind because there's theological questions that can arise out of these verses. And so first, let's look at the purpose, why Paul puts these here. It's not to spur on theological debate but to create humility and love. And so when we approach difficult texts like that, let's come to them with humility. Let's come to them with love. But the other thing is this, that the summary of Christ's life and ministry found here is not unique. Paul's not introducing any new doctrines here. He's, he's kind of just kind of rehashing what you find in other parts of the New Testament. So again, Paul's point is that the Christian's mind needs to reflect the proper model. He's saying, get your eyes off yourself and put your eyes onto God. And he's trying to say, like, you, you need to go low because our master went low. And Jesus, he's this model of genuine spiritual progress. Like, how should your Christian walk, your Christian life play out? 
while you should look more and more like Jesus through the years. And so Jesus' life is not a self-promoting struggle for power. He's not pushing people down and pushing them out of the way to come out on top. But his love for God and his love for other people is actually displayed in the way that he serves other people, those around him. Now, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, it says, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and nothing and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Now, this verse is kind of saying this. God is able. That God is capable of great things. And one of the things that you find throughout Scripture is this doctrine of the Trinity. That God is a triune God. That God exists. Um, There's one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go to the Gospel of John, one of the things John kind of is is making clear is this, that that Jesus is not just God's son, but that Jesus is actually God the son. He is God in flesh. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying God the son, we know him as Jesus, leaves heaven He gives up all the privileges that are rightly his as king of the universe. He becomes an ordinary Jewish baby. And that baby's life is going to lead to a cross where he's going to be crucified. Being born as a man, the creator takes on the form of his creation. Now now go with me on this illustration for a minute. Imagine you have like, a crazy amount of Lego blocks and you have all the pieces you could ever want and lots of space. And so you just go wild. You take those Lego blocks and you start building a Lego world and there's oceans and there's mountains and there's valleys and there's forests. And then you build some Lego cities and there's beautiful buildings. And you're like, oh, look at me. I'm a Lego architect. I'm so impressive. Uh, And then you step back after you've done all your work on your Lego creation and it's beautiful. And you go, it is good. And then you take and you create Lego people and you put them into your Lego creation and they're living in it and enjoying their lives. But then things go askew. They mess up. It's their fault. And you, instead of sitting back and going, your problem, you somehow reduce yourself to being a Lego person. And you enter into your Lego creation and you live amongst those you've created. And you don't avail all the power and the abilities that came with you as a creator, but you you live humbly amongst them. And like some of the, maybe some of the younger ones, like that would be awesome. I love Lego. But you're also going to go, man, that's going to be limiting. Can't move your elbows, knees don't bend, just going to be a difficult life. But this doesn't even come close to to the, the creator of the universe of all things. He enters into his creation for our benefit. Now, I worked at Wendy's restaurant when I was in high school for three years, and this was in Charlottetown. And every once in a while, the owner of all the Wendy's franchises on PEI uh, would come in. He actually owned all the Wendy's franchises and all the Tim Hortons franchises. So he's a a very important man, um, very wealthy man. But he would come into the restaurant and see how things uh, were going and just to say hi. And I remember one day he came in and we were just incredibly busy. We were short staffed. 
and he saw this. So he, he goes and he grabs an apron and he's, he's in his like fancy clothes. He's got a shirt and tie, nice shoes. And he comes into the kitchen with the apron on and he, he starts trying to help. Um, and I say trying because I'm pretty sure he was breaking some health codes as he was doing it. And I was like, not making the burgers as, as we were told in the instructional or in the instructions. But as a 15 year old, you're not gonna be like, oh, sir, please stop. You're not doing it right. Um, but I, I just remember, I was like, man, he's, he's like the top guy in this company. And he's, he's coming into the mess where there's grease. It's going to ruin his, his, his nice clothes. You're going to stink after you leave that kitchen. And he's helping. He descends from his executive position to come in and help. Now, in becoming human, Jesus did not in any way cease to be fully God while on earth, but rather he humbly chooses not to take advantage of all of his divine attributes, such as his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He lives a life of humble obedience with limited resources for the sake of others. He doesn't look out for his own interests, but he looks to the interests of others. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Like Jesus had every right to stay comfortably where he was in heaven, in the position of power with all the benefits and privileges that come from being God. But his selfless love drove him to a position of weakness for our sake. And he does all of this so that he can willingly go to the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that he can forgive our sin, that we can be reunited with God, that we can live with him forever. So when you read the gospels, you come away with this. Jesus has this mindset of service that he's the most unselfish person who has ever or will ever live. He lived for God's glory he lived for our salvation in spite of what it would cost him. And so Paul's point is this. Our able God made himself available to meet our need. Our able God made himself available to meet our need. Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, If we say we are his, so if we say we are our gods, if we call ourselves a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, we must follow the example of Christ. And so Jesus he doesn't just come to die on a cross. He comes and he shows us, here's the way that you are, are to live. Here's the way you're to conduct your life while you're here. And the great, great characteristics of Jesus' life are humility, obedience, and self-sacrifice. And so if you're going, I'm his, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, those should be the hallmarks of your life as well. And selfishness, self-seeking, self-display, Pride, that destroys your likeness to Christ. And they also threaten the unity of the church. So Paul knows this. If, if, if we're going to live in unity with one another, we need to tap into that spirit-empowered humility that allows us to put the interests and the needs of others ahead of our own. And Paul, Paul he, he's kind of going like, if every Christian adopts the attitude of Jesus Christ, that church is going to be united in its purpose. That church is going to look to the interests of others. It's going to serve others. It's going to share the gospel with others. It's going to make disciples of Jesus. And so I'm, I'm coming down to this point, that, that humility is the beginning of unity. And Christ's humility 
is displayed in his serving others. Now, when we hear that word humility, we can get that word wrong or the, or the meaning wrong. And we, we hear it and we go like, I'm, I'm humble. I'm not good at anything. I'm humble. I'm not worthy to fill in the blank. And we, we, we can get it wrong. That's not the humility that scripture calls us to. Like there's a quote that often gets attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it's actually somebody who paraphrases uh, C.S. Lewis. But it goes like this. Um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So, so what, what the, he's saying is this. Humility is not going, I suck. I'm not worthy. I'm not a good person. That's not humility. What he's saying is humility looks like this. You put the interests and the needs of others above yourself. You're not going, it's all about me. Now, um, as I said, many of us can get humility wrong and we think less of ourselves. And because of that, some of us, we go, I'm not worthy to serve on the mission. We bench ourselves from the mission of God because we don't think we have anything to offer, contribute towards the mission of God. And we might have desires to be used by God for great things, but we we go, I don't really have anything to offer the church or is going to be an asset to God's kingdom. And and this gets worse because what we do is we compare ourselves to other people and we look at the things that they can do and the things that they do. And we go, I can't do that. Look, look how able they are. And we get it wrong because we start going, look, look at all the things they can do for God or they do for God. And we go, God must love them more. God must value that person more. And so I need some of you to hear me on this. It's not your gifts. It's not your abilities. It's not your talents that, that makes God love you. Your value and your worth do not come from what you do. Your value and your worth do not come from what you have, but who God says you are. That you bear God's image. That he calls you his child. He says you are known, you are valued, you are loved. And what Jesus does for you on the cross shows that you are of great worth to him. And what determines your effectiveness in the kingdom of God is not solely your gifts or your ability, but more importantly, it's your heart. It's your attitude that determines your effectiveness. And so when it comes to serving in the kingdom, here's the thing. Attitude is as important as ability. Attitude is as important as ability. And greatness in the kingdom is not measured by our gifts and talents, but mainly by our willingness to serve, to go low like our master went low. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking how God has shaped you to serve. He's, he's prepared you, he's enabled you, he's, he's taking all of this and he's enabling you to serve a great purpose in his kingdom. And we started by looking at spiritual gifts that God has given you a set of special abilities that he gave to you when you became a Christian to share his love with others. God has put passions in your heart that these are things that you love to do or maybe you have a holy discontent. It's like, man, that, that can't stay that way. I need to address that. That can be from God that God has given you um, abilities, that there are talents that God gave you when you were born, and God wants to see you use those for things for his purpose. God has given you a, a unique personality. Like some of us are a little bit more unique than the rest of us, but, but God has wired you in a unique way to navigate life and fulfill a kingdom purpose. 
And last week, Rico Leon, he, he did an excellent job sharing on experiences, where, where he ta- said that, that God can take the things in your past, the beautiful and the ugly, the good and the bad, and he can use those for his purposes. He's got plans for them. And these five things make you unique, and God's going to use them for his kingdom purposes. Now, who's, who's watching the, the FIFA World Cup right now? It's going on in Qatar. Do we have soccer fans? Oh, man, not many soccer fans. All right. Okay, we got one up there. Um, let's go. So, like, okay, maybe you like soccer, foot, football. Yeah. That's, yeah. It, I, I mean, I agree. I agree. Um, but, yeah, soccer. Um, I've got the mic. Uh, but imagine basketball or hockey or whatever sport it is you like. Maybe you have a favorite team. And, and, and you love to cheer for them. You're like, I'm a fan of this team. And every fan wants their team to win unless you're like bottoming out. You're like, if we go last, we get the best pick. But generally you want your team to win. And maybe if it's a local team or you go on a trip, you buy the tickets, you dress yourself up in the merchandise. The, you, you might be one of those fans that actually paints yourself and you start cheering loud at the game. And like, this is what fans do. They want their team to win. And being a fan is fun when your team is winning. But being a fan is frustrating when your team isn't winning. I can speak with experience because I'm a, I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Um, it's just like terrible. I don't know why I do it to myself. But when our team is losing and we're getting frustrated, this is where we start sharing our opinion. Start going, why, what's wrong with them? They need to fire that coach. Why do they keep running that play? Now, here's the thing. As a fan, once the whistle blows, you don't really matter too, too much. Um, the, the team's victory doesn't really ride too much on your presence there in the stands. What matters most is actually the players in the game. It matters, do you have enough players to actually play the game? Like my skill at a sport, it doesn't matter really how good of a hockey player I am or a, a, a football player I am um, if, if I'm just sitting in the stands. Like, that, that doesn't matter. My skills in the sport have no impact on the game if I'm not playing. Like, LeBron James could go watch, like, an elementary kid's school um, basketball game. And greatest basketball player were one of them that's ever played the game, but, like, his skills have no impact on the outcome of that game. He's just a fan. And so the, the skill of those playing the game is what truly has an impact on the outcome of the game. It doesn't matter how good the spectators are for a a team to win the championship. It matters how good the players are. Now the church is in a spiritual battle against a powerful enemy. And in this battle, eternities lie in the balance. And scripture, it tells us like, we know who wins this, that the, the church is gonna be victorious because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's gonna be victorious because of his work. But when you look at individual churches, you're not gonna go, yeah, that's a winning team. Some churches struggle, and other churches do well. Now, if you are a Christian, I I hope that you want your church to do well. If you call HCC home, I really hope um, that you want us to be a healthy, unified church that's glorifying God, that's making disciples, that's having an impact on our community. And, And these are exciting times at HCC. Like, we're finally starting to get back up to kind of pre COVID numbers. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, we had 31 brand new first-time guests, which is kind of remarkable for a church um, of our size. And so God's doing some, some things. But, but here's the thing. Our church isn't effective based off how many of these seats are filled. Our church isn't effective based off of how many people are watching online. We don't win when people like our social media posts or when on the way out, somebody's like, great service. That, 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 that's not what makes us win. What makes HCC effective, what helps us succeed in the mission, what it all comes down to is this. How many people are playing the game? And I'm not making light of the church's mission. I'm just using kind of an analogy but it's the players cooperating with the Spirit, serving how God has shaped them to serve, who have the greatest impact on the outcome for the church and for our church. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going. Get your eyes off yourself. Put your eyes on Jesus. He is your example. What does Jesus do? Does he sit back and spectate and go, play the game? No, he comes in, he gets involved, and he comes to serve so I want you to ask yourself, this is for the Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you, but it's this. Have I adopted the same attitude as Jesus Christ? God has made you able to serve. Are you making yourself available to serve? And the way that God has shaped you and gifted you and prepared you and made you able, that doesn't really matter if you're not actually playing the game if you're not serving in a new way. And here's the thing, I know back to where we started, selfish ambition, pride, and concentration on ourselves, those things get in the way of us participating in the mission and actually playing the game. Because we, we hear these excuses. I make these excuses myself sometimes. Like, I'm guilty of it. Too busy. I got too much going on at work. I, I, I got too much going on with school. The, the kids have stuff going on. And these things, we, we, we say them. But here's what we have to understand. that The church is not meant to be composed of spectators, but to be comprised of servants. And for those of you who call HCC home, I, I need you to hear me. Jesus is calling you to be a servant, not a spectator. Like, have you ever noticed a fan or spectator? When things are going well, it's this. We are doing great this year. We have a great team. We are going to win the championship. But as soon as things start going south, it's like, they are terrible. What is wrong with them? They need to make a change. It goes from we to them. And, and here's the thing. When we only engage in the church as a spectator or maybe as a fan, there's a greater chance for disunity and for division because we're, we're not having the opportunity to focus on the needs of others. There's a greater chance that we're going to start thinking, man, this is, this is about me. And we start to become a consumer in the church. And, and we go, I don't like how they do that. I wish they would make some changes. I, I think they're wrong. And, and what we can actually start to do is actually grumble against the people who are actually playing the game and grumble against those who are helping to coach the game. And I just want to take this analogy a bit further. I know you're going like, man, this is, this is not feel good message but some of us need to hear it. We have some people who are trying to play too many positions. They're trying to cover too much of the field. 
There's some people who I have to tell them, stop. You can't take on another role. Don't. We have people who are playing exhausted. They're tired. They're there week after week after week. They're playing injured, if you want to put it that way. And we go, why would they do that? Because they see the importance of the mission, but there's nobody else coming to help play the game. Nobody else is necessarily stepping up to serve in that way. So God has made you able. It's up to you to make yourself available. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Each of you has been blessed with one of God's many wonderful gifts to be used in the service of others. So use your gift well. And I, I say this, I'm trying to say this in love, and I'm trying to say this as a pastor who's warning you that there is going to be like a time where we stand before Jesus and he, he expects us to give an account for how we used what he gave us. Matthew chapter 25. And for some of us, it's time to come out of the bleachers. It's time to stop benching ourselves in the mission of God and to come onto the field. Like your ministry matters. God has equipped you. He's prepared you. He's enabled you. He wants to use you. You have something to offer. Your ministry matters. So one of the things that, I mean, this service or this series has been leading up to this point. And one of the things that we want to do in this series is just give you the opportunity to come out of those proverbial bleachers and get onto the field and begin to play. And so in the chair in front of you, if you're online at halifaxchristianchurch.ca, you can find a, something that's called a serve card. And on the back of that, you'll find a list of all the ways that you can serve, or there's even a blank one that says other, because there might be a way that you can, uh, you've been gifted to serve that's not found here. Um, we want to encourage you, whether you want to fill that out today or take it home and pray over it, um, and, and bring that back and drop it at the Welcome Center, because this is just a great way to kind of get connected. And don't worry, like if you say, I want to do this, and it doesn't work out, you're not locked in for life. Like you might have to go to the ministry leader, and they go, this isn't working out. Or the ministry leader might have to come to you and go, this isn't working out. Um, but we will find a place uh, for you to serve. And so there's, these are in the chairs in front of you. I also want to say, for some of you, um, you've been serving in ministry for a long time, serving faithfully, and I want to thank you for that. It does not go unnoticed, but at the same time, I want to say this. Some of us are, are, are playing in the minor leagues, and God has gifted you and enabled you and matured you, and you can actually play in the major leagues. You can take on a greater role in the kingdom, and maybe God is calling you to do that, and this might just be an opportunity for you to do that today. So please fill one out. Uh, leave it at the Welcome Center, and then after the series is done, we're going to take all these cards, all the information, all the names, get them to the ministry leaders, and they'll begin uh, contacting you soon.